invite you to take your Bibles and turn again to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, as we now uh, get into the body of the sermon, as I've been uh, calling it the last few weeks, that we had the Beatitudes, which is the, which is the introduction, uh, and then the last two sections have been the, the transition portion, uh, talking about a, a bit of a summary statement of the Beatitudes, and then last uh, Sunday we looked at Jesus saying He hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And one of the ways that He's fulfilling the law is He is correcting the misinterpretation that the Pharisees had been teaching of that law. And now he will begin several sections that he always begins with, you have heard that it was said, but I say. Now, pay close attention when Jesus, he, didn't, he doesn't say you have read that it said, you have heard that it was said. So he's referring to some oral tradition or an oral teaching, not the law of Moses itself, as he's been accused of abolishing or changing. He's not. He is abolishing, if you will, the Pharisees' wrong understanding of the law. Okay, that's what, and so that's why I have, I've, I've named this sermon the true meaning of the law. That's what Jesus is giving, and this is part one, part one of three. Uh, you'll get part two next Sunday, and then you'll have to wait two months to get part three. Sorry, uh, that's just how, that's how it worked out this time. We'll have Advent, uh, and then we'll have a few worship sermons in the new year, and then we'll get back to, to part three uh, probably in February. Uh, so, but it's this common refrain, you have heard that it was said, but I say, Jesus, as I mentioned last time, he's not appealing to what the rabbi said. You have heard that it was said, but I think this rabbi was right when he said, no, I say unto you. Jesus is declaring something about himself here. I, I am delivering God's accurate word to you. I am God, is what he's saying uh, in, back in, in the previous section. So now, it's, it's a list of commands that you have wrongly been taught, I'm correcting the teaching. So in the sermon this morning, we'll look at two, do not murder and do not commit adultery. And Jesus corrects the explanation of the command and then gives a true application of the command. So that's what we'll do with each of those this morning. With that in mind, let me read for us Matthew 5, 21 through 30. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and, th and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift." Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you, you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go to hell. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we ask now that you would teach us from your word, Lord, that we would see it we would hear it, we would do all that it says. Indeed, O oh Lord, that we would find joy in your word to us. And so in Christ's name we pray, amen. 
I have several friends uh, right now, which actually also includes my older brother, who are now teaching one of their children to drive. Maybe you've gone through that experience in your house, but I'm kind of learning about this for the first time. My kid's not yet that age, but there seems to be three commonalities in the parents teaching their children to drive. Perhaps you can relate to this. The first is the first parent goes out with the child to teach them to drive, comes back home, and is so exasperated, says to the other parent, I'm not doing this anymore. It's now your responsibility. This, this is not going to work between me and the child. It's your responsibility. The second commonality seems to be is a light bulb moment for that parent who teaches the child to drive. Wow, I don't adhere to a lot of traffic laws that I thought that I did. Now that I'm having to tell my child what to do out in the car, I realize I don't do them as well as I ought to. And I've had to say to my child, don't do as I do, do as I say, which unfortunately you have to do at times as parents, right? The third is each parent remarks how strongly they slammed on the imaginary brake in the passenger side of the car, trying to stop the car because their child was about to do something foolish. Of course, there's not a brake on the right-hand side of the car. And what they also realized is you thought you had bad road rage. Imagine the road rage you have when you are in the passenger seat and you see someone doing something foolish while your child is driving. That's a whole other level of road rage, so I'm told. Driving can really bring out the worst in us, can it? We can become convinced, as I have recently become convinced, that I am the only competent driver in all of Johnson City. We get angry, don't we, when we get cut off, when we get stuck behind someone going slow, or when the person in front of you could have clearly made it through the tunnel on Knob Creek Road, yet they chose not to do it. It happens to me on a weekly basis. Or as a friend of mine recently shared to me, someone cut him off, he rode the bumper of the person that cut him off, He drove up next to them only to try to shoot them a dirty look to find out it was his grandmother that had done that to him. There are times in our lives, aren't there, when the worst of us comes pouring out. And often it's when we're driving our cars. When you can't believe what you just said. When you can't believe what you just thought. Well, I thought I didn't have that in me anymore and then kaboom, it comes out. It may be driving for you, it may be someone who insults you, someone who says an unguarded thought to you, and what comes right out of your heart, you are shocked by it. Or maybe not out of your mouth necessarily, but what you think about that person, or what you think about saying but don't, and it surprises you, doesn't it? What do you do in that, at that time? Are you shocked by it? Is it humble you? Or do you feel justified in that anger? Jesus wants to get into that discussion with us this morning, I think. As I mentioned last Sunday, he's in the midst of a reformation of sorts. He is reforming his disciples' understanding of the law. It was wrong, and he's now getting it back to what it was intended to be. Jesus had come to fulfill the law, as I mentioned just a minute ago, which included correcting the wrong teaching that had been given to them, It also included him in coming and being perfectly obedient, which he was. It also included his perfect atoning death on the cross, which he did. And now, for our purposes, he still intends to fulfill that law in and through us. He wants to fulfill that law in your life. He's going deeper with the meaning of the law. The Pharisees had taught, you have heard that you can do this in your own strength. 
But Jesus says, I say unto you that you cannot. You need the grace of Christ. You have heard that it was said that the problem was all those people out there doing things that make you angry, and I'm telling you that the problem is right here in your heart. You have heard that it was said it's only doing things that violates God's law. I'm telling you it's feeling and wanting and desiring things that violates God's law. The Pharisees have told you what is the least you can do to be obedient. I'm telling you what the most you can do to glorify God. If you remember from last Sunday, we are often wanting to know where is the line? What's the most I can do without stepping over into sin or really bad sin? And Jesus says, if you're asking that question, you've already missed the point. How can I glorify Him with my life, not just where is the line? What's the most I can get away with? So two things, kind of five, but kind of two, okay? Here's what I mean by that. Do not murder and do not commit adultery. Underneath each of those, what's the true explanation of the command and then the true application of the command? And what we'll do with each of these three sermons, we'll close by, well, how do these laws point us to Christ? That's where we need to land the plane anyhow. So the first is do not murder, and then what is the true explanation of that command? Again, Jesus is not contradicting the law. I know I keep coming back to this point, but but this is why this whole section is here. He is correctly interpreting the law. And every Jew would have understood Jesus' formula. You have heard that it was said. They would have opened their teaching in the exact same way. But they would have followed it with, you have heard that it was said by this person, but I think this person over here is right. And Jesus is now directly quoting himself, of course. The scribes and Pharisees were restricting the application of the sixth commandment to the deed of murder alone. So they're saying, do not murder only means don't kill somebody. Uh, Of course, it does mean that. That would be included in it. Jesus says it means much more than that. If they refrain from this, then they were good in terms of the law. And Jesus says it's more. I'm telling you, you cannot be angry with a brother or sister, insulting them, calling them a fool, It's not that all anger is evil. Jesus, of course, is angry at times. We can have a righteous anger, as the Bible talks about, even though I think that's a very rare thing. And often we will say, oh, I'm having righteous anger, when actually, no, that's not righteous at all. These angry thoughts, these insulting words, Jesus is saying, you are violating this command just as if you had murdered someone. Now, it's not saying... Since you have thought bad of them, you might as well go ahead and murder them. No, there's not an equivocation there. It's saying in the mind of God, the heart is just important as the actions. In the Gospel of John, he will write, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. What is he saying? You may not have a corpse to look at, but that's what you want in your heart. You want bad for that person. You want that person, uh, something bad to happen to them or their, their life to be frustrated in some way. This is what we're talking about. Anger and insult and bitterness. It's all sort of wrapped up into this command here. It is about external acts, but it's also about the heart. How often is Jesus talking about that? How often does He say to the Pharisees, you honor me with your lips, but I know your heart. Your heart is far from me. How often is he frustrated with the Israelites? You look at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. We, we 
we ought to do this. Yes, they have the credentials and they have the competency, but what about their character? What about their heart? Now, there is an angle of this that a lot of commentators go into. They want to define what is murder, and maybe that would be appropriate for a study of the Ten Commandments. I, don't, I think it would be a missing of the point here. Well, what about war? What about capital punishment? What about abortion? Those discussions to be had relative to those issues, just not here, because that's not Jesus' emphasis. His emphasis is your heart. His emphasis is each and every one of us assessing, how do I handle my anger? How do I handle it when I'm frustrated with someone? Do I violate this in the way that Jesus suggests? You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were master manipulators, and typically, They caused people to be legalistic, adding to the law things that were not there. Actually, here they're not being legalistic. They're being very liberally minded, aren't they? They're taking away. They're 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 sort of scraping off the real uh, the edges here of Jesus's command. They're not considering the law at all. They're they're making it easier. So, if that's the true explanation, what's the true application? Jesus helps us here, doesn't he? He gives us two illustrations to consider, and I'm going to modify them a little bit to help us understand them. The first is, if you are in the middle of a church service and you suddenly remember you have a grievance against someone or someone has a significant grievance against you, you need to leave right that moment and you need to go reconcile. That's what Jesus is saying here. If someone has wronged you or you have wronged someone, go seek forgiveness right that minute. Don't let it fester anymore. Don't let the bitterness increase. This, why? Because it's serious. Because it can, it can grow, the animosity can grow, the bitterness can grow and grow and grow into where murder really becomes entertained in the heart. The other one seems to be involving a debt of some kind. You owe a debt to someone, don't wait, go and fix the situation, pay the debt. It's the ministry of Christ to us, isn't it? It's a ministry of reconciliation. Because often what we do with this command and any command is only ask, what do I not do? Well, that's true. That's a part of it. I don't murder. I don't, I don't desire bad or I don't have anger for my neighbor. But implied in that is what? I do good for them. That's where Jesus is going with this anyhow. He's going to say, love your neighbor love your enemy and do good for them. So it's not just don't kill them, do good for them, pray for them, seek their welfare and well-being. In the second command, in just a minute, it's not just don't commit adultery against your spouse, true, don't do that, don't think lustful thoughts, but what do you actively do positively? You love them, you serve them, you love them as Christ loved the church, you, you, you seek their welfare and their good. It is the negative, but what is also the positive? Jesus forbids us to hate another person. But let's be honest for a minute. This is hard. This is really hard. Because I would imagine every single person in this room could think for a minute, one, two, three, four, five people in your life, that what they did to you was wrong, and it was. What they said to you was hurtful, and it was. And you don't want good for them. You want them to feel the way you felt. 
You want them to experience the pain they caused you. And Jesus says, no, you've got to get rid of that. You have got to reconcile that because very likely it's never going to harm them. It's only going to continue to harm you. Because these are warning passages, Westminster. It's warning our hearts. If you do not address this now, it gets worse, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And if it's left unchecked, judgment. It's saying this this can cause you to, to turn away if not addressed. And we are wise to listen to this warning, I think. Our words and our hearts are a true index, as one commentator said, of our spiritual condition. No, we may not see a literal corpse, but our words seek that. Our desires for someone seeks that. Reconciliation. That's what Jesus wants for us. And it's hard. Those things are hard. And it's made even more difficult, and this is not placing blame, but it is made more difficult in the culture in which we live. I've tried to make this point in previous sermons, but has there been a culture that loves anger more than ours? Any news outlet you watch, I don't care the news outlet, they want you to be mad. I hope you know that, right? That's, so you'll t- tune in tomorrow to see what else you can be mad about. And they can, they can excite the base and vote for this person because they're going to rectify all the things you're mad about. They won't, by the way. They, they want you to be mad. They want you to hate and they want you to lash out. It sells. And we get that within our own heart and it's hurtful to us, Westminster. I hope you see that. This anger, this, the stuff that comes pouring out, it's, Lord, help me. I don't need that in my heart. David Powlison, whose book, Good and Angry, writes a very clever chapter. The chapter title is, Do You Have a Serious Problem with Anger? And the whole chapter is one word, the word yes. Do you have an anger problem? Yes. Is he right? I think he's right. Does every single one of us in here have an anger problem? We do. To various degrees, of course, various intensities, but but I think we do. Are you willing to entertain the fact that maybe David Pallison's correct in your own heart? And maybe what you ought to do is not fight back, but to do exactly what Jesus wants us to do when we admit that we are poor in spirit. I can't do this myself. I, I, spiritually, I don't have what it takes, and maybe I've got to admit now that relative to my anger, I don't have what it takes. Lord, would you be gracious to me? Would you help me? Would you humble me? To suggest that I don't need help in this way, to suggest, I think, that I don't have an anger problem, typically is going to lead us to say, well, you know, I wouldn't have gotten so mad had they not provoked me. You know, I wouldn't have gotten so mad had they not said what they said or did what they did. It leads us to blame and not to take ownership of our actions. The Pharisees, in their heart, know this is a problem, but they're always trying to make the law doable. And Jesus is putting these laws out of our reach, exactly where they belong, because it means I've got to go to Him to find the strength to do these things. Come humbly to me. Seek my grace and my mercy. Secondly is do not commit adultery. What's the true explanation of the command? 
Again, Jesus affirms that the true meaning of God's command is much wider than just the prohibition, do not commit adultery against your spouse. It means that, of course, but it means more than that. Just as the prohibition of murder include angry thoughts and insulting words, the prohibition of adultery includes lustful thoughts. It includes your desires. It includes your imagination. You can commit murder without ever touching someone. You can commit adultery just with your looks and your heart. The command is a man looking lustfully at a woman, but the converse is true. This is a command also for women, not just men. Jesus is pointing out the relationship between our eyes and our thoughts and our imagination with our heart and with our actions. Jesus argues that to look lustfully is to commit adultery in the heart. It's to violate the command, even if you did not carry out the action. It's a control of our heart. Our vivid imagination, as you know, is a precious gift from God, but as we often do, we take precious gifts from God and we can use them sinfully, which we often do in this way. It's an unguarded thought. It's the imagination. Jesus says, if this is a struggle for you, pluck out your eyes, cut off your hand. No, he does not literally mean you need to go home and do that today. This is not self-mutilation. This is mortifying our sin. It ne- you need to act as if you're incapable of thinking those thoughts and seeing those images wherever they may be found. You need to, as I've said in previous sermons, deal ruthlessly with your sin. I, I can't look at that. I can't do that. So I've got to take drastic measures so that I won't do those things. I do not trust myself, we might say. What does this look like? It's to behave as if you can't do those things. The scribes had reduced the command to do not commit adultery, and Jesus says this is something that you can be doing in your heart and no one would ever know. It's something that only you could know. And once again, let's be all honest with each other. This one is difficult as well, isn't it? This is a sinister one. No person, I'm convinced, is completely free of this particular temptation. God made us, didn't He, men and women, to be attracted to one another, to need one another, to find companionship, to have children together. There are physical and spiritual dimensions to our relationships. And it's not talking about simply an appreciation. You can see a woman who's not your spouse. That's a beautiful woman. That is a handsome man. There's an appreciation. There's an appreciation for their gifts and talents and graces. Jesus says, what are you thinking about them in your heart? He's telling them, be careful. This is another warning. Don't let this go unchecked because it can run downhill to something awful. It's not good for man to be alone. That's right but in the context of that marriage only. It's being committed. Again, it's not just refraining from sexual thoughts and desires towards another woman or another man. It's about desiring your spouse, loving your spouse, serving your spouse, not just not doing something, doing something. And of course, you know this, but we think of this in different ways. Men, and I'm speaking generally here, men, we are more visually driven and stimulated. Women, you are more emotionally driven and stimulated. 
It's knowing that about ourselves and watching over those things. So how can we keep our way pure in this way? Well, it's realizing that you do struggle with lust in your heart. Knowing that if this goes unchecked, it can go further and further in the wrong direction. It's dealing with the real cause of your sin. It's your own heart. Asking the Lord to give you His strength and His grace. Not, I got this, I got the willpower I need. You do not. You need His strength and His grace. It's acting decisively and immediately. It's doing what Joseph did. When Potiphar's wife propositions Joseph, we talked about this in our study of Genesis, what did Joseph do? He ran. He didn't stay and, I I can do this, I can withstand this temptation. I cannot withstand this temptation. I'm going to run and flee this house, which is a great example for us. If that's the true explanation of the command, what about the true application of the command? I don't think this is an overstatement. I can't imagine a culture who deals with sexual temptation more than ours. Maybe that's inaccurate. I can't imagine one that would be more than ours. Pornography is everywhere. It's all over the internet. It's all over social media. It's, it's in commercials at this point. It is everywhere. And the temptation, you're not even looking for it sometimes. You're not even expecting it. it the image is there. What am I going to do? Am I going to entertain it or am I not? This is a challenging temptation for us. And it's okay to be honest about that. This is difficult, isn't it? What am I going to do? What are you going to do? What are we going to do to acknowledge that, but also to effectively pluck the eye out and cut the hand off in this way? I've told you of my friend, told you some months ago, he got rid of his smartphone and got a flip phone, which he still has, because he can't trust himself. I cannot have a smartphone, he said to himself, and so I've got to get a phone that does not have internet capability. That is plucking your eye out. That's cutting your hand off. Maybe you cannot have a computer in your home or in your office or wherever it is because I've got to pluck my eye out and I've got to cut my hand off. Because you see the dire, the direness of these circumstances. I can't go see the latest movie. Maybe I need to stop that friendship because that's just too much of a temptation for me. Maybe I need accountability software on my phone and on my computer. I need help. What are we ready to lose for the sake of gain, Jesus asks. Because it's better to lose something than to have this particular sinfulness pull us away from Christ and His church. It's better to forego something in this life than to miss out on the kingdom of God. You know, back to my previous point of not being able to imagine a culture more filled with more sexual temptation. This is where we've been going, hasn't it, for the last 60 to 70 years. There's been a sexual revolution of the 60s, but it's been more than that. It used to hurt you socially if you were sexually active. Now it hurts you if you're not so sexually active. It used to, sexually transmitted diseases used to keep these things at bay. Now we've got a medicine for that. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no barrier. 
I can't watch television with my boys, just to be very candid for a moment. I can't watch TV with my boys without some prophylactic drug, a, a, a ad for a prophylactic drug. Don't worry about your sexually devious life. It's no big deal. Take this. You'll be fine. So what is the barrier now? If there's nothing socially anymore, if there's nothing to hold us back in terms of a consequence, well, what is it? It's the holy law of God. It's the commands of God. It's He wants my heart. He wants my whole life. He wants me in this way. And He tells me this is dangerous, so I can't do it because He's God and He loves me. I hope you aren't hearing me wag my finger up here. I don't mean to be. I don't mean to heap any shame. I bring this up in this way for two reasons. One, because I want to be clear what the Bible says about this command and how dangerous it is. But two, I also know in a room this size, many in here struggle with this temptation. I don't know that for a fact. I, I, I know that because I know the statistics on it. There is freedom in Christ. There is not freedom in your willpower. And he asks us to come and to take it as seriously as he takes it in this text here. We are frail and weak. We want to overcome our sin and temptation, and yet we often feel so helpless in it. Don't you? Don't you feel helpless? Yes, we do feel helpless. But it's a word to draw us into Christ, not into shame not into withdrawal. It's to draw us to Him. I, Lord, I cannot do this. I don't know what to do with my anger. I don't know what to do with my sexual temptation. Come to Him. It's the real cause. The real cause of your sin is your heart, and you need Jesus. The problem that we have with sexual temptation is not the provocative dress of someone else. It's not the overwhelming nature of the temptation. It's not the sinfulness of your spouse that has driven you into the arms of another person. That's not it. It is our heart. And Jesus offers us His grace. This, these laws to us are spiritual laws. They're meant to change us from the inside out. They are meant to, finally, point us to Christ. These commands are not meant to make us feel better about ourselves. Do you have an anger problem? Yes. Do you have a lust problem? The answer to these questions is yes. Therefore, I need Jesus. That's, the, that's where the plane is going to land. I need Christ in this way. Why? Because he did these things perfectly, yes. But he also came to die for those who struggle in these ways and to give you freedom from it. Jesus obeyed these laws perfectly. He was hated he did not hate in return. He was murdered. He did not lash out in return. Father, forgive them because they don't understand what they're doing. Jesus is the perfect husband to us, his bride. He's always faithful to us, even though we are at times not faithful to him. He loves you perfectly. He loves you in all the ways you need. Only, only Westminster, the gospel can help us here. It's okay to fall down on your knees this afternoon and say, oh Lord, will you help me in these ways? I need, I need you. I am an angry person. I do often feel overcome by lustful thoughts, Lord, help me. And you can feel hopeless and helpless. Come to Jesus. 
Satan is the one tempting you in your mind. Oh, you got this. You got this. You're tough enough for this. You don't need to tell anybody about what you struggle with. You can handle this all by yourself. The getting rid of things, the accountability, the the, the mourning over the sin, that is of the Lord. Know you are not perfect in this area. But are you trusting in Christ? You know, Westminster, we all have our favorite verses in the Bible. You probably do anyway. The one that I find the most comfort in is when Paul is relaying his experience about his thorn in the flesh, and he remarks that the Lord had said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. I think about that verse a lot. The Lord often sets that verse on my heart. Maybe I'm struggling in these ways. Maybe I'm, I'm not feeling particularly <laughs> capable as your pastor. My grace is sufficient for you, Andy. And he says that to each of us, my, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for the ways that you struggle with your sin and temptation. My grace is sufficient for, yes, that is your life. That's what you once were. I have saved you by my grace. My grace is sufficient now from this point forward. My grace is sufficient to bring you all the way home unto salvation. But the grace is not just some thing out there. It's Jesus. (laughs) He is sufficient. He is the one that can help you in these ways. And when you find that freedom, when you find that, Lord, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the grace that you have given. His grace is sufficient for us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, these are weighty things for us. These are temptations, Lord, we confess we struggle with. That we would heed the warning to us this morning. We would desire to turn from these things, to reconcile, to to submit even our desires to you, O Lord. Lord, would you give us the grace? Because we know it's sufficient. We thank you for Christ and how he perfectly obeyed both of these laws, all the laws, but indeed the ones in front of us today. We thank you for his model to us, but his perfect fulfillment and the fact that we have his record. And Lord, we would leave here with the joy of the Lord today. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? And remain standing as we sing the doxology. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now and forevermore. Amen.
Thank you for listening. For the sermon archive, go to wpcjc.org forward slash resources forward slash sermon hyphen archive. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible, the Holy Bible, English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers, used by permission, all rights reserved. ESV texts may not be quoted in any publication made available to the public by a Creative Commons license. ESV may not be translated in whole or in part into any other language. Verbal credit must also be given to the ESV.